0: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 513.
1: initially i was like wait a minute no burnout is for people who are like you know single parents working three jobs to make ends meet i'm just a dude sitting in his bedroom and making youtube videos what right do i have to be burned out
0: many of us think that productivity is all about hard work that the road to success is lined with endless frustration and toil but what if there's a better way hi i'm jeff and this is the read to lead podcast the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth and i'm so glad you're here You are someone who considers reading with consistency and intention an important activity. And you know that I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then that needs to be a habit that you indeed cultivate. And to help you along that path, we dissect another book each and every week here on the show via the author, him or herself. One of my favorite topics to dive into is the topic of productivity, and that just so happens to be our theme for today. Our guest is YouTube sensation Ali Abdaal. He's written a brand new book that came out the day after Christmas called Feel Good Productivity, How to Do More of What Matters to You. I'm going to ask Ali to share about how his philosophy on productivity has evolved over the years, why the underlying causes of procrastination starts with your mood, The three different types of burnout and how to address each one and plenty more. Yesterday, I had the privilege of being a part of the 48 Days Eagles weekly call. These weekly calls have been a part of the late Dan Miller's 48 Days community for a number of years now. This call with members of the community was to, in part, let them know about some other resources they might want to look into. And I was pleased to know that one of the resources they wanted to include on that list is the Read to Lead community and a Read to Lead Plus membership. In fact, there were many on the call, a part of Dan's community, who are also inside the Read to Lead community. So that was really cool to see. And to know that Dan's team thinks the Read to Lead Plus community worthy of being on their short list of recommendations just means a whole lot. If you've yet to sign up for a Read to Lead Plus membership, I encourage you to do so. It's just $9 a month. And the first two weeks are absolutely free, so you can have a chance to check it out and see if it's right for you. Here's just a short list of some of the things you'll find there. Weekly book summaries and exclusive content not published anywhere else. Monthly Ask Me Anything live streams led by me. Monthly guest expert training calls, usually involving one of the authors that have been a guest on this podcast, so you get a chance to meet them. Challenges, workshops, networking events member spotlight opportunities, getting to hang out with people who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do, and much more. To find out more or to sign up right now and try it out for a couple of weeks, just go to jeffbrown.me and click the Read to Lead Plus free trial button. Again, that's jeffbrown.me. Ali Abdal is a doctor, entrepreneur, amateur magician, and the world's most followed productivity expert. Ali became intrigued by the science of productivity while juggling the demands of medical training at the University of Cambridge with building his business. While working as a doctor in the UK's National Health Service, he started to document online his journey toward living a healthier, happier, more productive life. And in the years since, his evidence-based videos, podcasts and articles about the human mind have reached hundreds of millions of people all around the world. In 2021, he took a break from his medical practice to focus full-time on his work popularizing the science of human flourishing and high performance. In his new book called Feel Good Productivity, How to Do More of What Matters to You, he reveals everything he's learned from a decade studying the secrets of feeling better and achieving more. Well, Ollie, I've been looking forward to this for several weeks since the kind folks at ReadWise made this introduction. I'm excited to have you here on the Read to Lead podcast. Welcome. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Before we dive into this feel-good productivity concept and the ideas around that in your book, maybe share what were some of the philosophies informing your view of productivity, say, back when you were in medical school?
1: Mm, nice. Yeah. So back when I was in medical school, uh, the main philosophy, it's it started off as like, you know, the philosophy of hard work of like, okay, I just need to work harder. You know, I got through school, like second high school, feeling pretty chill um, but then when I got into medical school, suddenly I was sort of middle of the class and I was very average and so my grades were like terrible compared to what I was doing in high school. And I thought, okay, cool. Well, you know, you got to step up. You got you to <laughs> work really hard. So that was like, uh, that was a pretty miserable year when like the only thing I knew was hard work. Then mm. in my second year of med school, we had an amazing psychology lecture that changed my life because mm. that lecture was all about how do you study effectively? How do you learn? like, what are the evidence-based techniques for learning stuff? And that lesson blew my mind because now I realized, oh my goodness, there's actually a smarter way to study than all of the hard work that I was doing. So mm-hmm. then my philosophy of productivity changed from work hard to work smart. And so I was you know, quite efficient. I learned the efficient techniques and, and things like that. But after a while, I realized, and this is sort of what the whole book is about, that it's not just about working smart because then you're very efficient, but you're not having a great time. Mm-hmm. And you still then have to use discipline to you get yourself to do something. Because efficiency itself is not... Efficiency itself is not actually, it's not that enjoyable. It's not that like motivating. Mm. And that was when I realized that if I could make my work more fun, everyone has to work hard sometimes. Everyone has to work smart, but if we can work in a fun and enjoyable and energizing way, now I was getting all the benefits of efficiency, but I was also way happier and I had way more energy to give to the other important areas of my life.
0: And let's springboard from that and, and go right into the book, uh, which is divided into three parts, and each of those parts is divided into three chapters. And so uh, I, I want, if we can, to maybe dip our toe in the water in a little bit of each of the chapters. And, and starting with this concept of of play, you want to achieve more, as you just intimated, without ruining your life. And, and, and the first step to that approach is, is a sense of play. And this is one right away that I really identified with. I think this is one uh, of maybe a handful in the book that come naturally to me. And so I really loved reading uh, about your experience there. How might we go incorporating a spirit of play into our lives from from your experience?
1: Yeah. So play is the most underrated productivity technique out there, I feel. Um, if we can approach our work with a more of a sense of lightness and ease, then everything becomes more fun and also becomes more productive. So tangibly, what, what does this look like? Um, one thing that I always think about whenever I'm struggling with a task is what would this look like if it were fun? And I have this as a wallpaper on my phone. It literally says it. it's a post-it note. What would this look like if it were fun? I had it as a wallpaper on my computer monitor back when I had a desk and. I applied this a lot when I had a, when I had a real job. So I think, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, you and I know that, you know, we have a lot of autonomy over, over what we're doing, but you know, if someone's listening to this and actually has a normal job, you know, I was working as a junior doctor in the UK's national health service uh, for two years. Some of that was during the pandemic. And I was like the lowest rung on the ladder of doctors. Like everyone was more senior than I was. And Mm -hmm. so I got, I, I, I had to do all the stuff that no one else wanted to do. And for the first few months of my, you know, working life, I was pretty miserable and I was like, ah, oh, you know, this is not fun. Like, why am I doing this? Blah, blah, blah. But I realized that if I had changed my approach to it, I could find ways to make boring work a lot more fun. So for example, I would put on, it's, it's, it's a small tweak, but I would take this little Bluetooth Amazon speaker to my workplace and put it in the doctor's office. And I would play like background music from the Lord of the Rings or Pirates of the Caribbean or Harry Potter, like mm. movie soundtracks. I'd be playing in the doctor's office. Wow. And, weirdly that made doing admin and doing paperwork a lot more fun when i was writing my discharge letters you know these are letters that you write to a general practitioner a family physician to summarize the patient's stay in hospital you know it's it's fun the first few times you do it but then when you have to do it like eight times a day for your whole life it starts to get pretty boring it's like tedious paperwork and so i thought how do i make this more fun i started just taking it a little less seriously and started trying to add a dose of humor into these letters you know it was nothing unprofessional it's just you know at the end of the letter i might say uh, ps it was a real delight to look after mrs doris and we are so happy to be reuniting her with her cat tabby or something Or <laughs> something you know it's, it's not that funny but it's yeah. just like a little bit of a little bit of lightheartedness in what is otherwise a really serious and boring document mm. when i would do presentations at work most of them are boring. No one wants to sit through a boring work presentation. So I found ways to add a bit of humor, to add a bit of color and uh, things like that. People really appreciate it because everyone wants to have fun at work. It's just work tends to be fairly boring by default. But more, I say more importantly for me, it made me feel way more energized and made me much more productive and just feel way better about my about my work.
0: I got to ask you, who is your favorite Lord of the Rings character?
1: <laughs> oh, I really like Legolas. I, 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 I love the vibe. And, yeah.
0: This first section, I didn't mention uh, how you've titled each of these sections: energize, unblock, sustain. We're talking about the energized part of the book, and the second of these three energizers is, is is power. And this is a word I think that trips a lot of people up. And you even talk about this a bit in the book. And I want you to address what you mean, Ali, by power in in this context, and what steps we might take if we want to increase our power.
1: Yeah. So power is you know the second energizer that makes work much more enjoyable and therefore makes you feel good and therefore makes you more productive. Power is essentially where we take responsibility, where we feel powerful over our dominion, which may be the smallest dominion in our work. Maybe you don't have much control over what your boss is telling you to do, but you can take control. You can take responsibility of the process. Mm. And the way I discovered this was it, in, my, in my own life, again, when I had a real job, I, I found out that weirdly working on weekends was much more enjoyable than working on weekdays. Because, mm. you know, as doctors, you, you do weekend shifts some of the time. I tried to figure out why this was. And I realized that the reason this was is because on weekends, we have less, like th- there's less staff, fewer staff, there's less senior support, and I'm doing more stuff. And initially I was like, well, if I'm doing more stuff, wouldn't that make me more stressed out or whatever? Mm. But actually, I found that when the seniors were away and I had to step up and take responsibility and take ownership of the patient's blood results and their mm. scans and things like that, I felt more powerful because I was doing more stuff. Mm. I was doing work, but it generated more energy. And I would get home from the end of the day at work feeling feeling super energized that I I had the chance to do this thing. Mm. And so for me, a big part of taking power is is taking responsibility and ownership of whatever is under your control. If you're working in a, a normal job, you probably don't have autonomy over what specifically you're doing, but you probably have autonomy over how you're doing it. And so you can, you can find a way to do it in your own way, make it more efficient, make it more aesthetic, make it more fun, make it like do the thing faster, do the thing slower, do the thing in a more comprehensive way or in a less comprehensive way. There's dozens of ways you can find to control the process of what you're doing. And that makes you feel powerful in your work, which mm. makes you feel good and makes you more productive. So
0: play power. Pal- the third of the energizers is people, and and one of the things you talk about here in this section is a difference in mindset of thinking like a comrade versus thinking like a competitor. I was intrigued by this. What might an example of that, Ali, look like?
1: Yeah. So, for example, when when I was <laughs> when I was in medical school, uh, there was a guy that you know a lot of people had a very competitive mindset. I'm competing with these other people in the class, and we need to compete for the same residency spots and all this. <laughs> And that may be true to an extent, but it's not a very helpful way of approaching your work. And, you know, one of the guys that I knew knew would like take out multiple copies of the same textbook from the library so that other people couldn't get access to that particular textbook. That's just a bit much. You know, there's no need for that. And no one liked the guy. Um, And I suspect he also didn't have a very good time doing his work. Mm. Whereas what I did is I, I kind of realized that hey why don't we all just work together? So I made a shared Google Drive where you know me and my colleagues would put our own essays in, and now we could all benefit from the work that everyone else was doing. And this really kind of came came together And when I when I was working as a doctor during during the pandemic. There was this real sense of like camaraderie and like comradeship mm. amongst the medics and the nurses, and you know. N- Normally, like medics and nurses can sometimes have a bit of an adversarial relationship. Like the nurses want the doctors to do stuff. The doctors don't want the nurses to do stuff. But what I found is that, especially during the pandemic, like the doctors and nurses who I looked up to the most, the ones who seemed to be enjoying themselves and also seemed to perform really well, they were constantly reinforcing this idea of like, hey, guys, we're a team and we can figure this out. We're a team. We can figure this out. We're all we're all on the same team here. It's not me against you. It's us working together for the sake of the patient. And mm. there's something about approaching work with that spirit that makes it way more fun, way more enjoyable, and helps you be more productive as well. Mm. Part
0: two of the book is something ad- addresses something all of us struggle with, and that's procrastination. Here you say that we often get procrastination wrong by treating the symptoms instead of the underlying causes, which mm. often relate to our mood. Can, can you unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, you know, through doing a bunch of research for the book and interviewing a bunch of researchers who specialize in the field of procrastination on my podcast, they all basically say that procrastination is at its core an emotional problem. We think procrastination is where, I don't know, I'm not disciplined enough or I don't have the right to do list or whatever. But actually, procrastination is an emotional problem. There is some kind of aversive emotion that we are trying to avoid by procrastinating. And so when we recognize that, we can treat it as an emotional problem rather than as a technical one. And We can try and kind of uncover what is that emotion? Why am I feeling that way? And do I need to be feeling that way?
0: Another blocker is is fear. And I was just talking with author Todd Henry about this a couple of weeks ago, that we don't get rid of fear, right? We exercise small acts of courage to face up to it. Where does the source of our courage come from, in your estimation?
1: Hmm. Yeah, you know, so this this middle chapter in in the book where we talk about fear. Like fear is one of the things that holds us back most. And you know, fear of judgment, self-doubt, like fear of failure, fear of what, what other people think about us. And At least what I found for me and, you know, from the various people I've interviewed is that, yeah, as you say, the fear never really goes away. You just have to kind of try and minimize it and then act in the face of it. Mm. And so we can minimize fear, for example, by recognizing that a lot of the fears that we have about what other people will think of us are completely overblown. Most people are not thinking about us at all in their day-to-day life. Most people right. are far too busy with their own life. They're not worrying about what we're doing. No one cares. I was so scared to start my YouTube channel. I was worried, oh my goodness, my friends at med school are going to laugh at me for having the audacity to put myself on camera. And I realized no one really cared. Like they were all just busy with their own lives. And so, yeah. you know, there's little tweaks like that that we can make to reduce the effect of it and recognize that a lot of it is in our head rather than in reality. Mm. But then ultimately, we do have to take that small step to act in the face of fear. And one great method I, I, I like for this is, you know, it's, it's been referred to as the Batman effect in a study that uh, they did, uh, where essentially the study involved, you know, getting a group of kids, splitting them up into a few, into a few different groups and asking them to do some sort of task. Mm. And for some of, the, some of the kids, they, you know, they just did the task as normal. But for one of the groups, they asked them to imagine as if they were their favorite cartoon character like Batman or Dora the Explorer. (laughs) And they found that the kids who imagined themselves as being Batman or this cartoon character, they performed better on the task and they felt better as a result. Hmm. And you know, the research has called this the, the Batman effect, but it's been called the auto ego effect. If you can step into an identity other than your own, that also is a, like a weird sort of mind hack to reduce mm. the effect of fear that helps you help you overcome it. You know, that small step of courage. So with me, for example, these these glasses are fake. I, I had laser eye surgery a couple of years ago. I, I don't wow. need to wear glasses. But the reason I wear them is because when I wear my glasses, it feels like I'm stepping into that role of, you know, for me, it's young Professor X from the X-Men series, where, You know, he's cool. He's a teacher. He likes sharing stuff. He's a nice guy. And so I feel like I'm stepping into that role. And so when I put the glasses on, it stops becoming about me and my in my own head. It starts becoming about you know what can I say that could potentially serve someone. Uh, I just sort of have that reminder, which is partly why I have these fake glasses.
0: <laughs> Fascinating. Well, the last uh, of the blockers here is inertia, and and you say this one's the most common one of all. What what are some simple ways to to battle through inertia?
1: Yeah, so I think the main thing is to recognize that procrastination tends to be a problem with getting started with a task. For most of us, once we've gotten started, it's like it's a lot easier to keep going. But that initial inertia, that initial push that we need to get started, that's what that's where things are hard. Um my favorite strategy is the the five minute rule where you know, back when I had a desk, I would have a an hourglass that was a five minute hourglass on my desk. And if I was procrastinating, I would just turn the hourglass over and I tell myself, I'm just going to do this thing for five minutes. Mm. These days I'm traveling. So, you know, carrying an hourglass is a, bit, is a bit hard. But I found that there are various songs that are exactly five minutes long, including the song Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> so I'll often put on Bohemian Rhapsody on Spotify. <laughs> it's exactly five minutes long. And I will tell mm. myself I'm doing this for the duration of the, of the song. And then usually I find about 80% of the time, I tend to continue doing the task anyway.
0: (laughs) Well, the final section of the book uh, delves into three different kinds of burnout. You've talked a bit about burnout. I'd love for you to share the epiphany you had in that Christmas Eve conversation with your mom about overexertion. Burnout specifically. Up to this point, you, you kind of thought of burnout as something that that happens to overworked people in in stressful jobs, and 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 this was a phrase or a word that that didn't apply to you, or at least you, mm. you thought it didn't, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So w- weirdly, the times where I've come closest to burnout were not when I was juggling a full time job in the pandemic as a doctor with like being a YouTuber and a business person on the side. Like, I didn't really get burned out in those senses. The time when I got you know, approached burnout was when I took a break from medicine and I, I went full time on this entrepreneur thing, mm. you know, they say that you should quit the nine to five to do your own thing. But I I quit the nine to five and ended up working 24 seven. Um, because <laughs> you know, when, when you're doing your own thing and, and, and it feels good and it's fun and it's energizing and it's easy to take on too much stuff. Mm. And I took on too much stuff, I tried to do way too many things. Mm. And I started to feel like I didn't really want to wake up in the morning. I started to feel like, what am I doing? Is this all feels so meaningless? And I spoke to my mum about this, who's a psychiatrist. And she said, oh, sounds like you're experiencing burnout. And initially I was like, wait a minute. No, burnout is for people who are like, you know, single parents working three jobs to make ends meet. Mm. you know, I'm just a dude sitting in his bedroom and making YouTube videos. What right do I have to be burned out? Mm. But once I kind of did a, a bit more research into it, I stopped kind of stigmatizing it in my own head so much. Mm. I realized, oh, You can actually get burned out from sitting on a computer and grinding away at your business, even though it's not coal mining and it's not working in a factory, but it is still mentally taxing. Mm. And I realized the power of, unsurprisingly, taking breaks and doing less than I thought I could just to to conserve my energy. Mm. And what that meant was that I ended up focusing on the smaller number of things that actually moved the needle rather than all of the busy work that I, I've been spending so much of my time doing
0: mm, and that leads me to the research you've shared in the book about depletion burnout what specifically do you do Ali to give yourself enough time or space to, to truly recharge
1: yeah so the the first one is um there's a I'm I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar by the book uh, four thousand weeks by Oliver Berkman it's mm. really good one of the things he talks about in the book is just embracing mediocrity and just not trying to do too much stuff. And when I read this, it reminded me of an experience I had when I was working in the emergency department for the first time, like I was in the emergency department, it was my first week on the job. And, you know, I'd previously done like cardiology and care of the elderly. So I'd, I'd done like specialties in the hospital, but I hadn't worked in accident and emergency in the emergency department before. Mm. And so I came in, in my first week and I was like, I'm I'm going to save lives here. This is, this is the real stuff. This is where you really save lives. And there was this waiting room that was just full of patients or always patients in the waiting room. And I thought, okay, cool. We've got them all on the list. Mm. I'm going to see the patient and then deal with them and see the next one and the next one and the next one and weirdly no matter what i did the waiting room did not seem to empty and you know there were a bunch of us doctors working on the shift but the waiting room was still full and so you know the next day i was like okay today i'm going to be more efficient i'm going to see twice as many patients in the same amount of time i'm sure i can like type a bit faster use some keyboard shortcuts like manage my time a bit more effectively batch tasks parallel process all of the productivity techniques i'm sure i can do that and i saw like maybe a few more patients but the waiting room was still full I was like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) I skipped my lunch break because I was like, I want to see more patients. And the waiting room was still full. And I mentioned this to one of the consultants, uh, you know, that's our version of attendings. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned the list of patients doesn't seem to actually get smaller. And he said, ah, it's your first week, isn't it? (laughs) Um, And he said to me, look, and he, he said something that I've, I still remember to this day. He said, the waiting room will never be empty. There will always be more patients to see. All we can do is show up each day as our best selves and see patients in order of priority. This is called triage. This is what like surgeons do on the battlefield and what good doctors do. As long as we are seeing the highest priority patients in order of priority, then everything will work out in the end, even if the waiting room never empties. And I realized this. This applies to all of our lives. All of our lives have a waiting room of projects and tasks that we could be doing. And it is a waiting room that will never be empty. This is partly why I don't like to-do lists, because to-do lists are infinitely long. You can always keep adding stuff to your to-do list. And if we recognize that the waiting room is never going to be empty, and all we can do is show up at our best and just do the one or two or three highest priority things and just do that every single day... We will make enormous amounts of progress. Mm. So now as a way of avoiding burnout and also as a productivity technique, I ask myself at the start of every day, what is my number one priority? Uh, You know, I I phrase it as what's my adventure going to be? Because I think calling it an adventure makes it seem a bit more fun, you know, Mm -hmm. making things fun is good. And then I pick like one or two more side quests. Again, I use the phrase side quest from video games because again, it just makes it more fun. You know, a side quest might be calling my grandma or it might be filling out that admin form that I've been putting off for ages. But phrasing it as a side quest makes it feel more fun, makes me more enjoy it more. And I try and limit it to one big thing, that one adventure, and like maximum three other smaller things. And I find that as long as I just do that, I'm very unlikely to be burned out. But as soon as I start getting in more patients from the waiting room, getting in more projects and things and thinking, oh, I could squeeze all this stuff in, that's when things start to go bad.
0: Before I ask about what is essentially the last chapter on misalignment burnout, you said something that I wanted to key in on. You talked about not liking to-do lists. And I've, I've heard you share in some of your videos that as people read the book, you don't want them to walk away feeling like they've got a bunch of to-do's to do. It's really a book of experiments. Why was it important for you to fill the book with ways to experiment with each of these concepts?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, productivity and life advice in general, uh, yeah. what I don't like about the, the the self-help industry is that it claims to have the answers and mm-hmm. a lot of books and a lot of podcasts even have this sort of, you should do X, Y, Z kind of mentality. But I think productivity, personal development, it's, it's deeply personal. Um, What works for one person may not work for another. You know, what works for me and growing my YouTube business may not work for someone who's an employee at a corporate or something. Mm. And therefore, I like to think of all this advice as experiments. Take the principle and experiment with it. See if it works. For some people, playing background music while they work will be really effective. For some people, working with their friends around them in the people chapter will be really effective. For some people, tracking their progress like writers track their word count will be really effective. But for some people, it won't. Mm. And I just think of these things as experiments. An experiment is something you try for a week or so. You see if it works for you. And if it does, great. And if it doesn't, that's also great because you've now gotten a data point of what is something that's been that's been working for you.
0: Mm. Talk about what you mean, Ali, by misalignment burnout. And why do you say that overcoming it is ongoing? It's, it's, a, it's a lifelong task,
1: basically. Yeah. So misalignment burnout. We did a bunch of research into the sort of the causes of burnout. And, you know, there's the obvious stuff like, you know, running out of energy. But then there's this more insidious form, which is misalignment burnout, where you feel burned out, even though you might be enjoying your work. There is something about what you're doing that does not feel aligned with mm. the future you actually want. Mm. This is that feeling that you feel in your heart or in your soul that like, Oh, you know, <laughs> I know I should be enjoying this and I know I'm very privileged to be doing this job, but like there's something about it that doesn't quite feel right. And when we feel misaligned in our actions, uh, when our actions feel misaligned from the future that we want, that leads to burnout after a while. And so really The way to get around this is to, you know, fairly regularly, you know, every few months, I like to do it every quarter, um, and definitely at least once a year, is to just really connect with that sense of where do we actually want to be. So for example, one strategy for doing this is by, you know, as Stephen Covey would say, begin with the end in mind. So imagine your funeral. What are the sorts of things you would want people to say at your funeral? What is the sort of life you would have liked to live? What are the sorts of things you'd like someone whose life was impacted by your work? What would they say about how you impacted them? And just thinking about that for a few minutes helps you get clarity on, oh, okay, I think this is the sort of person I want to be. And then you're like, to what extent are my actions today aligned with that future? And if they're not, then great, you make a change. And that's amazing because now you made a change and you're now more you've nudged your trajectory more onto that path that's in alignment with what you with, with what you actually want. There's a really good book called Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans that kind of talks about this strategy of how do you think like a product designer when it comes to designing a life well-lived? And a lot of that is about these sorts of prompts that just encourage us to get outside of the day-to-day and just think a little bit longer term about where do we actually want to go? Not because we're going to be fixated by the destination, but more like having a destination in mind. Let's just make sure we're on the right journey. Yes. You know, it's such a tragedy if someone's like super productive and efficient at doing one thing, but they realize that it was the wrong thing all along. That's also a recipe for burnout, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> well, uh, Ali, before I ask a couple of questions that aren't directly related to the book, is there anything we haven't touched on about the book that you want to make sure people know or or walk away with?
1: Yeah, I think the main thing is that even if even if y'all don't want to read the book, which is totally fine, um, I'm sure you have plenty to read. Uh, <laughs> just the title, "Feel Good Productivity." Really, the core message is that if you're if you want to be more productive. Find a way to make your work feel good. And that's not to say only do work that feels good because we all have to do things we don't enjoy some of the time. And, you know, whatever your circumstances are, you may not have the autonomy to just do whatever you want. I'm not saying do whatever you want. I'm saying whatever you're doing, ask yourself the question, what would this look like if it were just a little bit more fun? And whatever you're doing, you like I literally interviewed a guy who's working at McDonald's, like in any job at all in the world with a bit of creativity you can find a way to make it just a little bit more enjoyable and if you do that you'll be more productive you'll be more creative you'll be less stressed but you'll also just be happier generally and that is that's kind of the message of the book like mm-hmm. in in a way it's a book about happiness disguised as a productivity book <laughs> on the surface it's about being more productive yeah. but really the message is hey you know, we spend so much of our time working. We spend so, so much of our time doing stuff for the sake of some kind of future that we want. Let's just enjoy the journey along the way. And if, if I could just like help people get that message that really it's about enjoying the journey along the way, then I would die a happy pen.
0: I want to ask you about your personal knowledge management practices. I teach a cohort called Note Making Mastery with four parts, collect, connect, crystallize, and create. And I'd love to know how you uh, approach making sure that the things you learn, the content you consume, the things you want to remember and incorporate into your own work don't get lost. What, what do you do?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, 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 I seem to be always in between personal knowledge management systems. <laughs> um, I don't like I literally yesterday was watching some tutorials about Tana and we've got a call with the Tana founders like two days from now because possibly investing in the company and stuff. So it's like I'm always trying out all these new tools. But even though I am an enthusiast of tools, I find that really, for me, the way that I remember stuff is by creating that final piece of the puzzle. Mm. So Every week I write an email newsletter where I have to come up with something to say to these days 600,000 people, which is mm. quite fun. Every week I make one or two YouTube videos. You know, every now and then I'd want to post an Instagram caption. And through the process of writing the book, that was also a lot of creation. So mm. I think really it's the regular email newsletter that and, and the YouTube videos that is my kind of creation source. Which means that when I read stuff, I'm like, Oh, that would make for a good email newsletter. I'm like, Oh, that would make for a good YouTube video. And especially with books, I really like doing summary videos of books and they're not quite summaries. It's more like, it's more like these are the lessons that I personally took away from Jeff's book, for example, or from Mm. Seth's book or from Pat Flynn's new book or, you know, whatever that might be. And by just writing down the lessons I've taken away and talking about them on camera, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, you know, when you teach something to someone else, it reinforces it for yourself. So for me, this Mm. act of teaching and creating content really helps solidify all of these concepts in my own mind.
0: You mentioned some authors. You talked about the book, Designing Your Life, I think it was called a moment ago. You probably read as much or more as I do, um, probably more books than I do a year. I read about 60 a year. I don't know where you're at, but probably in that in that realm. This may be a tough question to answer, but what are one or two or three books that just stand out to you as, as ones that have really
1: impacted you in a powerful way. Mm, nice. Top of the list would have to be The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, which I read when I was 18 years old. And that <laughs> put me on the path to entrepreneurship, passive income, ah. financial independence. That's that's the book that the way I think of it is that a book can change your life, but a, bo- a, book, a book changes your life because it gives you the right idea at the right time. Mm. That idea leads to a decision. That decision leads to action and that action leads to results. And so the idea I took away from The 4-Hour Workweek is that it is possible to make money while you sleep. Sounds a bit clickbaity, but it's true. And so while I was in medical school, I decided to start a business. And then that led to action and eventually led to a YouTube channel where now I make a lot of money while I sleep. And I would say my life (laughs) has changed as a result of the four-hour work week. Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. That's a little bit less well-known. That was the book that I read in 2016. And it encouraged me to start my blog my personal blog. I've been wanting to start a blog for like six years at that point because I love reading personal blogs. But I was scared by the idea of creating AliAbdallah.com because I was worried again what my friends and family would think. <laughs> like what sort of arrogant, narcissistic person is it who has their own personal blog? But I read Austin Cleon's Show Your Work. It's a very short read, very easy to read. Mm-hmm. I, it's the book I've most gifted to people. And it just encouraged me that actually it's okay to show your work. It's okay to share what you've learned in the process of doing the thing that you've done. I started writing on the internet and that directly led to me starting a YouTube channel without which we wouldn't be here. So thank you, Austin
0: Clear. (laughs) And great recommendations. Love both of those books. Uh, In the time we have left, just a couple of quick reader slash listener questions. I solicited some yesterday and narrowed it down to a couple here. And coach Kevin has the first question for you, Ali. Do you already have an idea for your next book? No pressure, but do you already have an idea for, for book number two?
1: Yeah, I've got a couple of ideas. Um, one idea is I would love to write a book about relationships uh, and like applying the principles of productivity to like romantic and friendship relationships.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, I'm now engaged, been in a really long-term relationship for a few years and I love reading books about relationships and I've interviewed like the Gottmans and a couple of other relationships experts and coaches and stuff. And there's so much stuff I've learned over the last few years and I hope we'll continue to learn about how to be a better partner in a relationship. I would love to write a book about that, not Mm. in a sense of I know what I'm doing, but more in a sense of, hey, I had no idea what I was doing. And then here's some really helpful tips that I got from these experts. And here's a book that compiles them all into one. Mm. You know, when 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 the girlfriend says she wants emotional support, what the hell does that mean? I don't know. I had no idea. (laughs) And then I read books about it and talked to people. And now I have more of a sense of what it means to emotionally support a spouse when she says she's feeling neglected or disconnected or she feels like I've turned away from her what on earth does that mean? Like I'm right there. I'm on my laptop. We're on our laptops together. Like what, what? And I was just realizing, oh, she thinks about things differently. And if we could communicate in this way, then things work out. I would love to write a book about that kind of stuff.
0: Mm. Last one here from Mark, who reminded me he's a fellow Brit uh, and he wants to know, it's two two-part question. What was the moment you realized you wanted to transition from your medical career to become a full-time entrepreneur? Number one. Number two, what lessons have you learned that you could pass along to other entrepreneurs who are trying to turn their passion into a business?
1: Yeah. So the moment I decided to leave medicine completely is actually captured on camera. It was where I was being interviewed by Lewis Howes on his podcast, School of Greatness. And it was about two years ago. And Lewis was interviewing me about passive income or something like that. And about halfway through the episode, it turned from me talking about passive income ideas to him, like coaching me about this emotional issue that I had of like not being able to let go of the identity of being a doctor. Mm. You know, I had so much like fear and scarcity around it. Like, um, you know, what if my YouTube career plummets? What if my business fails? Then at least if I'm still practicing as a doctor part-time, I will have a backup option. Mm-hmm. And this plan B, this backup option was holding me back and tying me to this identity of being a doctor. Mm-hmm. And it took Lewis in a very, you know, he was very nice about it, but like, you know, tough love to be like, look, man, if you lost everything, you get canceled overnight, no one knows who you are, your YouTube talent gets deleted, all the skills of entrepreneurship you've, you've developed, how long would it take you to earn 100 grand a year? And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, if I had to, probably a few months. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, how long would it take you to earn 100 grand a year as a doctor? And here in the UK, doctors don't get paid very much. So you have to train for 10 years. And then you're earning hundred grand, which is like the maximum salary you can earn as a doctor. Mm. And I'd be making that in a few months as a business person. And so like that conversation, which is still on, on air on his podcast, really helped me realize, hang on, the only reason I'm sticking to medicine is because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people will think and I'm afraid of running out of money. Mm. And just addressing those head on was like the turning point of recognizing, actually, let's go full time on this entrepreneur stuff.
0: Mm. You, had to, you had to burn the boats, basically. So the second part of that question for entrepreneurs who are trying to turn their passion into a business, that's a very broad question to answer, but how would you address it?
1: Uh, I would say when you turn your passion into a business, it stops, becoming, it stops staying as a passion. Mm. Uh, so if you would like it to stay as your passion, then sure, make pocket money from it, but don't rely on it for your full-time living because it will become less fun. I do not enjoy making YouTube videos as much as, my, as, much as I used to when, I, when it wasn't the thing I did for work. Um, there is something liberating about not needing to make money from a thing that makes you approach it slightly differently. Having said that, if you do want to make money from the thing, I would say the biggest tip I have is find a way to use your passion to serve people who are already rich. <laughs> and it sounds bad to say, but it's much easier to make a business where your target customer has money compared to when they don't have money. And a lot of people are like, you know, bleeding heart about this where they're like, oh, no, I really want to help people who don't have resources. It's like, okay, great. But it's hard to make money helping people who don't have resources. (laughs) Do that on the side, but don't try and make a business of it. I have a lot of students in my audience. Students often think, what can I do that will help other students? But students also don't have money. Their parents have money. So maybe target the parents. It's very hard to make a business selling stuff to people with no money. I would say find a way to connect the passion to a way of adding value to people who have have enough money to spend with you and your business. And then once you're making 10K a month, 20K a month, whatever your target is, at that point, you can like start to do the pro bono altruistic stuff.
0: Well, the book, again, is called Feel Good Productivity, How to Do More of What Matters to You. And his name is Ali Adal If you didn't know him before today, I highly recommend you go right now and be one of the 5.15 million last time I checked people who subscribe to his channel. Ali, thank you so much for your time. It means so much. Yeah, Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I've put links to the books that Ali mentioned, not just the ones in answer to my question about book recommendations, but also the books that came up during the course of our conversation You'll find links to each of those on Amazon at the show notes page for this episode, along with the other links and resources that he and I talked about. All of that is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 513 for episode 513. If you believe that the always-on hustle culture creates an unhealthy, counterproductive relationship with work, you will definitely want to be here for next week's episode when I talk to University of Georgia professor Melissa Clark. Her new book, which is being released today, actually, is called never not working why the always on culture is bad for business and how to fix it again that's next time on the read to lead podcast that's all for this week hope to see you next time until then as always remember leaders read and readers lead